0: Good morning, Christ Chapel. So honored and humbled to get to be in the pulpit with you this morning. If you would grab your Bibles and open them, we're going to be on page 925. You're going to need a Bible. These sermons don't work without one of those. Um, I, uh, I, I was in high school um, when I first kind of was introduced to this idea of God's will. Um, and, and this idea of God's will being, yes, God has kind of this broad, big will. Jeremiah 29, 11, he's got plans for my life. But, but really in high school is when I started to wrestle as a young believer with, okay, what is God's will for my, my daily life? What's God's will for these decisions I've got to make? Uh, does, he, does he care? How involved should he be? I mean, those decisions that ripple throughout our life. What, what should I do after high school? What college? Who should I date? All of these things um, are things that I would just get paralyzed and say, God, how do I know the right path to take? Uh, What we're going to cover today is Acts 16. It's a big chunk. We're going to skip a rock off of a few few of these parts, but it's so rich and so deep, and we're going to get to dive in, and what we're going to see throughout this chapter is we're going to see a thread that runs through, and we're going to really see Acts 16 as a case study of Paul and his crew as they followed God's will, what happened. And we're going to, I think, honestly, be encouraged and convicted and challenged uh, to be able to help understand what are some of the guardrails for us as we ask the question, God, how do we follow you? What does it look like to walk uh, in your ways and in your will? Before we jump into it, I want to give two presuppositions before we jump into this passage. And the first is this, and it's really just a broad overview that theologians of how they would at least begin to answer the question of what is God's will. There's two categories of God's will. There's God's moral will, right, or sometimes it's referred to as his general will, and then there's God's specific will. And so God's moral will and his general will is what is obedient, right? So if you're you're asking, you know, if you're asking a question, should I should I burn my neighbor's house down? You could read scripture and be like, okay, that's probably outside of God's moral will, so that's a no, and you can know, all right, this is specifically, I shouldn't do this. But so many of the questions are these specific questions that, fit within the realm of these aren't sins, these aren't wrong things to do, so which way should I go? And that's really where we're gonna zoom in a little bit more so. Um, what school should I attend? What job should I take this job? Should I, should I turn down this job? Dating and parenting and grandparenting, all of those things, there's nuances and questions that, um, that drive ripples in our life. I get stuck in the specifics, right? How, how do I determine God's will? How do I follow it? Does he care? Does he, does he really care? I, I think what we're going to see is that he does care. And he is driving and he is, has a plan. Uh, even in the specifics. Uh, I want his will, big and small, but how do we navigate that paralyzation? And so we're going to see this as a case study. But my second kind of caveat before we jump into verse 6 here is, is I want to adjust your expectations. Because if you walk out of this sermon, uh, at, the end, at the end of this sermon, and you feel like you've been given a formula for determining God's specific will for all the decisions of your life, then I have miscommunicated. Um, I don't believe one of the things we're going to see, that God doesn't work in formulas. Certainly not when we follow his will, and that's something that's going to rise to the surface throughout this passage. Uh, but he does give us wisdom and guardrails of how to make those decisions. Um, there are patterns of how God works uh, through scripture that we're going to see. So Acts 16. Acts 16 picks up right where Acts 15 left off. The the Jerusalem council, these elders and leaders and apostles had gotten together. They they really tried to clarify and landed on a decision about what the gospel is. They didn't invent the gospel, but they realized as they looked at what God was doing and how God was saving people, they realized in the Jerusalem council, the gospel is the grace of God. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so Paul, in the first five verses of chapter 16, he finds this this new mentee, Timothy. He partners with him, and he takes what the Jerusalem council has landed on, this clarity of the gospel, and they start sharing it. So they've got this powerful good news to share. And so they're on a roll. Uh, Verse 6, we see them take off on their journey, and we're going to see some some curveballs. So look with me, verses 6 through 12. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. This is massively significant in the history of the New Testament church. One, because it's in the Bible, so we know it is. But here's the other reason, right? We know it is because what we're witnessing in chapter 16 is we're witnessing God geographically steer the second missionary journey of Paul in a way that changes. Only God could have known how this geographical steering of Paul right here in these verses changes the history of faith in Christ throughout the world in a way that brings God glory. This is the time when God shifts Paul away from Asia into Europe in a a transformational way. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Look, Paul had a plan, right? Paul had a strategy. He he wasn't, I mean, he he thought, okay, I'm going to go this way. There's a a map we'll actually put up here to help show kind of some of the geography, right? He's thinking, okay, I'm going to go into Asia, and it says here, right, that that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit in verse 6. He says, well, I'm gonna go into Bithynia. Well, it says the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go. And so God narrows his path. He ends up in Troas. That's where he receives this vision. And then he crosses the Aegean Sea and, and starts heading towards Europe and really, um, and really ends up in Philippi here that we're gonna see in Acts 16. And there's incredible stuff that happens. In, in verse 6 and verse 7, when we hear that God forbid that the spirit of Jesus, which we know is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, when we hear that, I wish I knew exactly what that meant. I wish practically I knew what does he mean by they were forbidden, and we don't. We don't get that context. Our author Luke, he doesn't tell us exactly how, what that looked like to be forbidden. We don't know if that was a natural disaster. We don't know if that was just something that, that the Lord had put on their hearts. We're not exactly why those no's were no's, but we do know this from, from the text, that God was behind that. That God was behind closing the door for Paul to go, to go that way. And we know that God opened this door into Macedonia in this different direction, and it was huge. This is, is how Paul ends up heading in the direction of Rome. And you get to Rome and everything changes. This is, this is the first time that we've seen where the gospel starts to head this way into the map in a way that just becomes contagious for the glory of God. Right? It was the right path. It made this huge impact in history and in, in the life of the first century church, certainly. And I want that. I want to live a life. I believe you are here and you want to make a life that is impactful. That brings God glory. God, how do I do this? How do I make the right decisions and go the right path in a way where we can look back and say, look what you did. That's what we want. But we don't have the perspective that God has. Right? We don't have the perspective. I can't, I can't know exactly which path is the right path to bring the maximum impact, the maximum amount of God's glory. What, what's going to be the most fruitful way to go? So we realize we're going, it's going to require knowing and walking God's plan in order to do that. And so to do that, we must follow God by going where he is calling. I've got to follow God, not by my own strategies, not by how I think I should go, but I've got to follow God by going where he is calling. If you're a believer, if you're a believer in this room, then intrinsic to that belief, if, if you have saving faith in Jesus, then you're actually a follower of Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, then that means that you're going to go where, means at least we are called and designed to go where God calls us to go. That honestly may seem pretty obvious, right? Pretty obvious principle for us to all agree with this morning. It's a pretty easy blank to fill in on our notes. It's a really hard daily discipline. It's easy for us to agree with that as a principle, but it's pretty difficult as a lifestyle to put in practice. How do I follow where God is? is calling and throughout this chapter throughout this case study we see it here in these verses we're going to see uh we're going to see these patterns of how god's will works when we're following it as these guardrails. and the first is this god gives us turn by turn directions throughout scripture god gives us turn by turn directions rather than the big picture it's a pattern of how god's will plays out that is consistent and it helps us to understand, am I following and knowing that he is a God who gives turn by turn and not the big picture is helpful. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, whenever Danielle and I, my wife and I are headed somewhere that we're not super familiar with, we, we put it in the GPS, right? I think most of us do that. I'm a big Apple Maps guy just because it's easy. So I type in the address, Apple Maps. There it is. I look and see how, how many minutes it is. And then I push that little button, squiggly line, and I zoom back. And I want to see the big picture. And so you push that little squiggly line in the corner of the maps, and you're going to zoom back, and you're going to see. And I'm going to see, okay. Then when we go Hewlin and cut over victory, okay, interesting. I want to see the big picture, and I'll leave it on that. That's my preference. Because I want to see where we're at and how far we are, and I'm familiar enough to to get the ballpark of it, and I just want to see the big picture. My wife, who for the sake of this illustration is significantly more godly, She likes the turn by turn, right? She likes the turn by turn. It it frustrates her to do the big picture. She wants to just tell me where I'm going next. I don't need to see everything, right? Which is why she has more Holy Spirit than me. But that's what we have, right? That's what we have is a God who I say, I want to see the big picture. God, what's your will? God, what's your, how do you want me to parent? God, show me the big picture. God, what, what decision do you want me to make with my career, with, with my relationships? What, as we ask those questions, we say, God, show me the big picture. The destination, how long is it going to take? What are the turns? And then, and then kind of I can take it from there. But God, throughout scripture, is a God who says one turn at a time. It's, I mean, it's in Acts 16 throughout, right? Paul's not given a big picture, right? He actually has paths closed to him. Before he even knows the right way. He just is going, nope, I'm not supposed to go here. Uh, Okay, I'll just keep my feet moving. And Oh, I'm not supposed to go here. And God shapes Paul's path as he is following God's will in a turn-by-turn way all throughout Scripture. Moses, Moses, you're going to set my people free. You're going to be a huge part of me setting my people free, the Israelites from from the oppression of Egypt. This is going to be huge. Awesome. How are we going to do that? You're just going to, one step at a time. We're going to do some plagues. Awesome. Could you give me the first four? Nope, just one at a time. Right, we see that. uh, Joseph, Joseph, your brothers are going to submit to you and you're going to be this significant figure. I'm in the bottom of a well right now. I don't really know how that's going to work. One step at a time, God gives his people these directions. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you through this and then you're going to be in jail for a little while. You're going to be falsely accused and then you're going to interpret... That's how our God functions, and it's important for us to see that pattern and apply that principle as we navigate discerning God's will. We want to know the big picture. You know what happens, though, when I know the big picture? What happens when I know the big picture is I know I'm no longer dependent on God, right? I, if I have the big picture, then I, my heart shifts to, okay, I got this oh, that's where—that's the way you're leading my career, my relationship. Cool, got it. I can take it from here. And when I see the big picture, I, I am not dependent on God. What if, just go with me for a second. What if, what if dependence on God is actually more valuable to my life than clarity from God? Let me say that one more time. What if, Your dependence on God is actually more tangibly beneficial and fruitful and valuable to your life than getting clarity from God. All throughout scripture, this is how God works. I'm just going to leave that right there between you and the Lord to wrestle with that one. Turn by turn. Turn by turn. God desires us to be dependent on him. We think clarity is the goal. Maybe he says dependence is going to be way more fruitful in your life. One step at a time. And there's something else encouraging here. Working hand in hand with this one step at a time following is also a God who does the opening and the closing of doors. And we get to just do the discerning and the following. So hand in hand with this kind of first biblical pattern, this principle of of, of really just trusting that there is turn by turn is also the God who is way ahead of us, opening the right doors and closing the, ro- the wrong doors. And our role is to discern and to follow, not to open. Our, our role is important to keep distinct from God, right? God opens and closes, not me, not Paul. We see in those verses we just looked at, right? We, it wasn't Paul. Paul was, was forbidden to go into those areas. He had a plan, And God says, nope, I'm going to close those doors. I want to make it happen. And yet time and time again, God says, you're not called to make it happen. You're called to just obey. And I will make it happen. And and he is always faithful. And he is always just to do just that. Whether we see the results immediately, even on this side of eternity or not, he is faithful and we, we have to believe that. Look, Paul followed where God called. He closed, he opened, and Paul ends up in Philippi. Right, This is such a great case study of, of just trusting where God, where God leads. He ends up in Philippi, which ends up becoming one of the healthiest churches. When Paul writes letters to churches later in the epistles, I mean, Philippi, the Philippians, that, that book is, I mean, he loves those people. It's one of the healthiest, best churches. He ends up meeting and getting to be a part of leading Lydia to the Lord, who is this massively significant figure and friend in Paul's life. Look with me at verses 13 through 15, when he's now in Philippi. And on the Sabbath day... We went outside to the gates, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying... If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Do you see it here too? Right? (laughs) Do you see it here? I mean, he opens doors of following him, not just geographically, right? It's about people too. It's about relationships too. It's not just what vocation or what place should I move or travel to. I mean, he opens doors in relationships, literally, People's hearts, he was led to this riverside gathering, this prayer meeting, he meets Lydia. And in verse 14, who was it that opened her heart to hear what Paul had to say? It was very clearly the Lord that did the opening of that door as well. It's hard to not want to control it myself. It's hard to not want to control it myself. But throughout scripture, people who try to open their own doors and force their way over God's way never turns out good. All throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, you look at Abraham. Abraham, you're gonna be the father of many nations. Well, I'm pretty old. My wife is pretty old. Maybe, maybe I'll have a baby with my maidservant. Maybe that's what God, I'm gonna force this, this promise from God, this big picture from God. I'm gonna force the turn by turns in my life. And that doesn't turn well at all for Abraham. I, I, we think of Peter, right? Peter, when he's, when he's forcing a situation and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is being arrested and, and Peter says, I'm going to take this into my own hands. Jesus shouldn't be arrested. And he starts chopping off Romans' ears because he's missing it. Because he says, I'm going to take this. I'm going to open this door. I'm going I'm to fight my way through this. My part. Your part. If you're following God, our part is to discern and then follow. He is the one who opens. He is the one who closes. The hearts, the opportunities, the places, the possibilities. Look what happens next. I love this. There's so much richness in this chapter. So many things going on. Look at this kind of next scene in Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So we got a new character here who had a spirit of divination, it says. And and she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Stop for just a second. See what's happening here. I mean, you've got a girl who has a spirit of divination. So she's demon-possessed. She's being used by these horribly selfish, wicked men in the city of Philippi to take this demon-possessed girl and basically earn money from her by fortune-telling and all kinds of, who knows what this looks like as far as just these demonic uses of this girl. And she is following, and it's fascinating. You preach a whole sermon on this. Even the demon recognizes the gospel of Jesus as authoritative. And this demon-possessed girl is saying, yep, what they're saying is true. You cannot deny it. This is who these people are. And Paul turns eventually after days and sets this girl free from this. By the power of Jesus. Turns and sets her free. But there's consequences to that. By Paul doing what is right here. By Paul setting this girl free from this demonic oppression. There are some, some consequences. Look with me from 19 through 24. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. <clears throat> it said in this passage, if you caught it, it was days. This girl followed them with, a, with a, the spirit of divination, followed them and for days was, was doing her thing. Before finally Paul turned and said, okay, in the name of Jesus, Enough. And I have a theory, why, why was it days? And I have a theory, it's because they were, they were weighing the consequences, right? They were there to share the gospel. They were there to be obedient and to share this good news, saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. Um, and, and by doing this was going to upset the owners, and that was not going to go well for them. And that's exactly what they did, right? They, they suffered some very real and very painful consequences from that decision they got beaten they got thrown in jail but they did it anyway and they did what was right he did the right thing the right and godly thing to set this girl free would we heed the challenge of scripture though this morning and would we follow god would we follow god by doing what is right despite the consequences Right, that we would follow God as we search for his will, as we take one step after the other. That a part of our life, if we want to be true to how he calls us to live, is to follow him. And we say, we're going to do the right thing despite what it's going to cost us. The result of doing what was right is going to be rough. Paul, he didn't neglect it though. He didn't neglect it. He, he, he followed what God said. He was used by God to set this girl free from from this spiritual bondage. Well, how do we know what's right? How do we know what's right? And there's this biblical pattern that we see throughout, this, this thing that really can help to be an application for us, a pattern that God's will is always in step with God's word. So as we navigate doing what is right, we've got to remember this pattern and this principle, God's will, how do I determine? It will always, always be in step with his word. He's not going to tell you to do something outside of his word, right? There is this pattern throughout. This will helps us become more practically able to navigate God's will in some of the specific ways in our life. When searching for God's word, we've got to be in, in his word. God's word becomes these guardrails, becomes these guardrails on the left and the right to help us steer through that. Here are some examples. If if I'm trying to make a decision on a, a job or a career or something like that, I, I get to run it through the guardrails of God's word to say, well, what, d- does any of these options, any of these paths, do they lack integrity, right? Because we know if they lack integrity, okay, well, this is outside of God's word. And so we know it's going to be outside of his will for his followers, maybe even more nuanced. You're making decisions that affect husbands and wives, right? You, you, you're if you've got a spouse, you're making decisions that affect him. Well, in God's word, in Ephesians 5, we get a pretty clear picture of what marriage is supposed to be, right? A, a, a wife submitting to a husband and a husband laying his life down for his wife in full selflessness and how he leads her. So even as we, we look at a marriage, we say, okay, well, that's... God's function of a marriage is people who are really selflessly laying down each other's wills, almost battling for the short end of the stick. Well, if that's God's word, then this decision I'm making and how it might affect my wife or how it might affect my husband, am I submitting my decision underneath within God's word, right? Proverbs is an entire book of the Bible that speaks so much to the the wisdom that's tied to decision making. But this is why it's so important that I, I can't just get in God's word as a reaction to the heat of the circumstances or the fork in the road and I think, oh no, I need a good answer from God here. i got to see if you just turn the fan on and see which page of the Bible opens and see what he has to say. I, I've got to be a person of the word. I, I've got to know God's word. I've got to spend time in God's word way before I get to those crucial periods of time so that I can recall it so I can run my decisions through the grid of is this obedient because here's the thing the grid that my my instincts that are certainly our culture would preach to us is is your feelings right what do you feel like doing that's so dangerous right our feelings lie to us all the time and yet that's what our culture would say Right, they would say, "Well, just just choose whichever way you feel." And and yeah, we even see throughout Scripture, people are, are lied to all the time. Doesn't mean God can't speak and doesn't speak. He certainly does through your affections, through your desires. He gives you a will. He he, he, he steers those things all the time. But that certainly can't be what drives my decision making. Well, this is how I feel, or my circumstances. You know, I've just got to I've just got to choose the right circumstances. That only drives us towards self dependence, right? Instead of faith at all times. If you're trying to discern the right decision for following God's will, you've got to be in God's will. Not just to see his moral will, but also for wisdom and for the specifics. And if you're not spending time in God's word regularly, then you're not going to be able to identify where he might be calling you and what he might be doing. It's going to be harder to discern those choices when we get to forks in the road. Okay, there's one more section of scripture here. I want to look at one more scene here that we're going to cover in Acts 16. And, again, you're going to see this thread throughout it. starts in verse 25. So they just got whooped, right? They just got whooped and locked away in prison. So pick up with me in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to him. Let's stop. Let's, let's replay. what. So they just got beat up right? They're trying to bring God glory and share the gospel. And because of doing the right thing, they got beat with rods and now they're thrown and locked, not just in prison, but in the inner part of the prison, right? And what's happening, they are singing and worshiping and praying to God and hosting a worship service for other prisoners to listen in on. That's what's happening. There is something that they are tuned into that I desperately need in my life. Let's keep reading. Verse 26. And suddenly, suddenly there's a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Because certainly his bosses would have killed him if they found out that everyone escaped. So he's going to take his own life. Verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house. He set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I love this. I love how Paul is just following God's will. He's just, he's just loving the people who are right in front of him. He loved this man more than looking out for himself more than doing what would have been convenient, he loved the guy that was right before him as a part of saying, all right, this is what's right in front of me. Following God is, is about also loving whoever is right in front of you. Follow God by loving whoever is right in front of you. Love people. Right? Do what is obedient. Do what is wise. Do what is discerning. But also, don't make our decisions void from seeing through the lens that our Savior sees, which is people. He sees people and he loves them. And if we're following God, then he should will give us a heart to see people and love them. And we think, well, who, who do I love? How, how do I do this? How, how do I, what's your will for my life to make an impact in the lives of people? Who is right in front of you? And love them. A- a- and be sacrificial. It, certainly Paul here gave up his opportunity. The, the gates break open. The shackles fall off. Clearly miracle of God. And yet he says man I want to look out for this guard I want to look out for this guard and it changes the guard and his entire family's eternity forever a whole new family tree emerges of faith because Paul did that and, and it's really because they're already so in tune with God's voice right they are tuned into another channel as they're sitting there in their shackles bruised and beaten they are tuned in to God's voice. And we see that pattern throughout Scripture as another pattern, another principle, another application for us as we discern God's will. Remember, God's will is easily discerned when we are tuned to God's voice. Right? And this is a direct complement and a direct partner with the pattern we just talked about a second ago being in God's word, right? Because we hear God's voice through God's word. And so this is a a direct compliment, another side of the coin here. We've got to be in God's word, but not just so we can receive information and memorize some proverbs and and wrestle and make sure we understand and and love and follow God in our head and, and get our doctrine right and get our obedience right. It's also so that we can have our hearts changed, right? We're not just in God's word, so that we understand the rules and we understand what's white, right and wise. We're in God's words so that the Holy Spirit will take God's word as I meet with him. As I sit before God and I open up his word that we have the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, illuminating this, changing my heart to be in line miraculously. Not because I'm good at it or know how to, but because I say, God, would I submit to this? And so I, I get in God's word, not just to know the information, which is so crucial to making the right decision, but also to have the right heart and the right posture so that I can hear his voice, so that I can know it's, it's not just the science of what should I do, it's the heart of, Christ, what do you put before me? How are you steering my heart? And that's such a different thing than just trusting my feelings, it's trusting God's voice as I submit to him, as he changes my posture, right? I know his voice. And, and this gives me the ability to discern why, why maybe, maybe certainly in our culture, fear is sold to us as wisdom. Right, We have a culture very much that is going to serve us fear and say, hey, we should be scared of this so we should make these decisions. But then, but then I hear that and I run it through the grid of discernment of like, yes, things look really bad. And yeah, there's some horrible things that aren't okay and we can't be okay and we've got to step in and do what's right. But we've got to do it with the right posture and the right spirit. And How would Jesus do this? Otherwise, we're just going to be Peter chopping off people's ears. Because we think, "Oh, this is the wrong thing. Jesus, Jesus should be on the throne, not getting arrested, and, and all of a sudden we're not tuned in into the right voice. And so by, by hearing the heart of God, by tuning into His voice, then all of a sudden, that posture helps complement the wisdom and the truth that we know and submit to in Scripture. Paul was tuned in. Paul was tuned in. But wait, Paul had a vision, right? In troas. Paul's, Paul's in, a, in a God-ordained earthquake to set him free, right? Those are not normative ways that God speaks, right? And if I'm waiting, if you are waiting for that stuff to happen, we're going to be pretty confused, and pretty paralyzed. What about us? Right? If I put these biblical, just to be devil's advocate, if I put these biblical patterns together and I realize, okay, God is going to give me turn-by-turn directions and, and it's, it's God who's going to open and close and, and, and all of that, and, okay, well, well, what would keep me from just throwing up my hands and saying, okay, fine, well, I'm not supposed to do anything because God's going to give me the turn-by-turn and he's, and he's going to open the right doors. And so what would keep me from just being paralyzed and saying, okay, well, I'm just going to sit here and be passive until I hear from a burning bush or until I have a vision to go take a job or move to Macedonia or or whatever, how does that not paralyze me? Remember, Remember when I said it takes faith and dependence to follow God one step at a time? I think it takes faith and courage to keep moving, to avoid getting paralyzed, to keep moving even though you don't exactly know what's around the corner. That's not me. That's throughout scripture paul that's what happens here with paul paul's travel he gets nose he keeps moving he runs into a hurdle and he doesn't just stay there he just keeps moving he he goes the wrong way at times and then has to backtrack back right this girl with the demon same thing i mean it, he doesn't know what's going to happen he doesn't have clarity yet of the next steps. He just does the right thing while he's sitting in prison. The same thing, he kept moving. He kept doing what's right. He kept worshiping and trusting, tuned into God's voice. So here's the paradigm shift for me. Ready? Here's the paradigm shift for me that I see throughout Scripture. I struggle to submit to. But I, I, know, it's, I, know, it's, I know it's from God's word, so I, I know I should. The goal in following God's will is not to avoid rejection. Right? If so, Yeah you're going to get stuck. If, if the goal for following God's will is, I need you to tell me the right step so that I don't take a wrong step, well, then you're saying the goal is to take the right step. What if God wants you to have to backtrack? What if, what if God is leading us into something that might be more challenging, might be less comfortable, might be more of a trial? I don't want to put myself out of, out there until I'm sure that this is what God wants. I want to make sure he makes my steps successful. Well, we're going to be paralyzed a lot by trying to follow the specific will of God. Paul gets rejected. Paul gets persecuted. Paul has to backtrack through his journey, and he is following God's will all along the way, which helps us to understand there is a bigger goal than those things. Our comfort and our success is not the ultimate goal of following God's will. The destination of God's will isn't my best life now. The destination of following God's will is more about him than it is about me. That is a pattern throughout scripture. And it's a principle I have to keep open-handed in belief. The destination of God's will is more about him. It's more about him than it is about you. If I make my pursuit of following God for my life all about me, then I'm going to get stuck. I'm going to get paralyzed. I'm going to get frustrated. But if I make my pursuit of following God about him, about his glory, if the lens I look through when I'm asking the question, God, would you show me your will? If the lens I'm looking through is, would you show me your will? Because I want to live a life that is glorifying to you then it totally changes my pursuit of how I make decisions in the specific will, how I discern the specific will of God, how I wait when I don't have an answer for years. It changes my perspective. No longer is rejecting and backtracking and seasons of not knowing, no longer are those bad. Maybe those are things that God is using to shape me. Maybe rejection and backtracking and those seasons of not knowing Waiting on the Lord is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Exactly where you're supposed to be because the goal is not my comfort. It's not your clarity. But it's God's glory and it's refinement in my life. That's the gospel. That God gave himself up, humbled himself to the point of Jesus on a cross, the second person in the Trinity, so that we might be his. And now we get to say, Lord, my life is not my own. It's yours. You guide it. You steer it. Give me principles. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Give me wise counsel. But God, would it be about you and your glory? Let me pray. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful that you are a God who is personal, that you are a God who does care, cares about us, cares about the decisions we make, cares about the large decisions, but also small decisions that have impacts that we don't know. And so, Lord, would you give us freedom from feeling paralyzed, But instead, increased faith to trust, even while we're waiting. Would you make us people of your word? Would you make us people of faith? And God, would you shape our perspective? That just as Paul in Acts 16 follows you ups and downs and hard things, that we too would be able to follow you one step at a time for your glory and your glory alone. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.